Casper, you you look like you should be playing guitar in a Norwegian metal band. Like now that you don't have the facial hair. I miss the facial hair, not gonna lie. Yeah, it's like sad. I'm like surprised how much how many people can tell the facial hair is gone because like I thought it was always like so blonde that no one really knows. But it's definitely miss. And I'm happy. I'm happy that it's missed because you know right back. it comes back. Yeah, I'm half Filipino, so I just like don't grow facial hair very well. Is that real? Oh yeah, my facial hair is fucking terrible. Like that whole like Fu Manchu mustache thing, like legit right here on my mustache grows way fucking faster than the rest of the fucking mustache. Dude, you should learn karate. Uh, I do want to take up like jujitsu when I move. I don't know like how racist that is, but like you definitely should learn karate and then like grow that thing in. So you get like a natural reverse Hitler kind of Yeah, thing. like it legit grows yeah. in way faster here and then this part takes forever. Like I've tried to do the no shave November thing and like I start like three months early and then it maybe looks decent by the time November comes around. It's like an anti-fascist mustache. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that's how anti-fascist I am. The middle of my mustache refuses to grow. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, please fucking cut this, but oh, never mind. I'm not even going to fucking make the joke because it's fucking terrible. I just realized it. No, go ahead. Do it. I'll cut it. Oh, yeah. Please <laughs> fucking cut this. But I was like, uh, since Jaren is quoting, uh, wants to cite in reference a anarchist, you know, I would like to point towards authoritarianism. Please read my conf. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm drunk, so I knew it was fucking bad. No, Please right. fucking no, cut that. You, you know what's fun, though, yeah. is I actually have read that. I have, too. It's... It's wild. It's yeah, wild. Like, <laughs> granted, granted, it's toned down compared to, like, Turner Diaries, but, like... <sighs> fuck. All right. Anyway. Yeah, read Siege while you're at it. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Unrelated. Do you guys know exactly what's going on with the Philippines? Not at all. Duarte is a fucking crazy person. Yeah, I know, but it's like I'm trying to research it, and it's like you can't like really Google this shit too much. Like, so it's kind of like like something's going on right now. Well, like there's communist parties having like a revolution currently. Hell yeah! Yeah, And so like there's a lot of contention. It seems like, especially like in the more tame forums where it's not just like hot takes like actually principled people where it's like it's going back and forth between whether communists should be for duerte because he's anti-us or yeah like it's 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 it's, yeah it's like extremely convoluted like I'm trying to supporting Pol Pot on Iran. Yeah. And so, yeah. And it's like, dude, like, I don't think so. From what I know, Duarte is a fucking bad fucking guy. I did just see that a communist leader or communist candidate in Peru is making some progress. So that was cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can't remember. The U.S. is about to hit the coup button on that, though. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, it didn't go so well in Bolivia last time. So. I think yeah. the button isn't working as well. <laughs> it's almost like the empire is uh, kind of decaying there. Weird. Thank you, China. <laughs> Sorry, Jaren. <laughs> hey, man. I look. As soon as worked, you know, that was actually really funny because, like, fucking China was protecting an Iranian fuel liner that went to Venezuela while they were trying to install Guaido. And when I saw that, I was like, no other time in modern history would that have fucking worked. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. No. Like that's huge. That's the U.S. just being like, I can't get it up anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my God, Mike. You know how we were talking like the whole like uh, Chinese jet pilot that was like, this is all ours when he invaded. Yeah, yeah. Dude, have you actually seen what fucking Taiwanese airspace looks like? No. Is it all like gerrymandered? Dude, shit? it like- covers mainland China. Oh. So, so like yeah. literally a jet on a runway in mainland China can violate Taiwanese airspace. What? Damn. <laughs> oh, since we're just talking about shit that we said when we were streaming video games, let me just say it once again, because I said this to Ward privately, but I kind of wanted to get it out on the podcast. How much I fucking cringe when I listened back to the Shahid Batar episode and I asked him that question. I was like, oh, what, what did you think about when uh, the rioters at the Capitol on the 6th tried to overthrow our democracy i sound like such a fucking lib i want to kill myself every time i hear it like as if we have a democracy in this country but how i think that how often does that keep you up at night it just it bugs me that i even framed it that way but i mean my only defense is that it was the simplest and easiest and quickest way to frame that question you know instead of like saying oh yeah not that we have a democracy but the fact that these you know rioters tried to overthrow our ostensible system of government in the you in the imperial core or some shit like yeah. that was the easiest quickest way to say it, but it just sounds so lib cringe and it just it just makes me shudder every time i hear it so anyway it made me shudder when you said it yeah yeah but what are you gonna do yeah. i mean yeah you didn't want to spend like you know five minutes explaining how nothing about this is democratic yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i feel like our listeners hopefully get the point but just throwing it out there like i did that uh somewhat intentionally but whatever all right let's actually wrap it up all right i bet shahid thinks about that every night mike no, he definitely doesn't. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he's still he's still on Twitter posting base shit. Yeah, yeah, dude. Fucking, he's like, I can't believe I did that small time ass like joke of a podcast and then went on useful idiots with Matt Taibbi and the next day like. <laughs> well, what was that other one that you did? Who? Uh, you did another podcast with somebody. Oh no, I'm saying like he went on useful idiots. Oh. Like Matt Taibbi is a rolling writer, and like Shahid Buttar literally went on their podcast the day after he did ours. And I was like, holy shit, <laughs> in case we weren't painfully aware how out of our league Shahid was, like that just absolutely drives it home. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I've, I went on uh, Left Shelf and Caitlin's Conspiracy Corner a bunch. I, I and, really uh, enjoyed you on the Left Shelf, by the way. I think that was a really that fun episode. Really I had good. a great time talking about that book. I haven't talked about books since college, so that was yeah. a lot of fun. I got to force Caitlin and Colin to do a VHS Action Rewind on Demolition Man that I can be on. I'm surprised dude, haven't Colin already. is fucking mad at me because I didn't fucking let him know that we were watching that. Uh, well, I mean, we're going to do movie night every. Oh, let's plug that. I'll add it to the, the plugs, but we're going to do movie night uh, every Friday night in the Discord. We stream a movie, and, you know, if you liked MST3K, it'll be pretty similar to that. And we'll just shit talk movies. Uh, we did Demolition Man this past week. It had a good time. And then we just proceeded to drink, and I put on The Departed, and then Ward came back even drunker at like one in the morning and put on. Um, what did you put Fear on? and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah, oh, yeah boy. Yeah. So we have a good old time in the Discord. If you're not in there, just uh, go ahead and find it on the link tree. It's Linktree South Turn Leftist, and join us in the Discord for all of our debauchery and fun that we have there. Trap, trap,
artists are amazing. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Turnless Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him, and tonight I have all my regular hosts back. We finally have Sterling back. Welcome back, Sterling. He, him. How you doing, man? Hey, glad to be back. Glad to have you back, buddy. And, of course, we have Cosper. How you doing, Cosper? Cosper's pronouns are they, them. What's going on, uh, buddy? I'm doing good. I just crawled out of a bunker, and I'm, uh, I'm ready to record this podcast about authoritarianism. Let's do it. Doing a little hoshism there? No, yeah, I mean, it's something... We'll talk about it at a later time. It's kind of secretive right now, though. Okay. Secret bunker. That's so kind of cryptic. Most like bunkers it. should be secret. Yeah, right? Yeah, I wouldn't ask any more questions if I was you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, of course, we have Ward and Jaren. Also, he him as well. How are you guys doing? Ready. Got my modellos. Yeah, doing good. Got some wine. Cool, cool. Yeah, I have, I have three LaCroix on deck. I'm, I'm an alcoholic. What about it? Yeah, I'm just drinking coffee tonight myself. Now we really sound like Pearl's Pod. Does the, uh, does the bunker have more LaCroix in it? No more bunker questions. <laughs> no, yeah, we, we got to cut that out. Okay, so tonight we are going to do the long-awaited authoritarianism versus anarchism episode. And so we've been talking about doing this episode for a while. Uh, I think we mentioned it as soon as Jaron joined the podcast during the Reagan episodes. And we've always talked about it sort of as if it would be some kind of battle royale of the leftists, you know, the anarchists versus the tankies. But I think if anybody is expecting any kind of shouting match or, you know, debate, you know, a la, what are the debate channels that everybody watches, like Sock Done Left or like Fausch or whatever? Like, this is obviously not that. So if that's what you're expecting, you're going to be disappointed. But go ahead and go watch your favorite Red Lip streamers if that's what you want. But um, especially after the last few episodes where the topic of dealing with fascists came up, like on the episode with MJ and Chris, or even last week's where we talked about our points of view on China or other quote-unquote authoritarian socialist states, I think Jaron and the rest of us are actually going to agree on quite a bit, as much as we you know, like to proudly call ourselves tankies. So I hope that the listeners get out of this is that left unity is a real thing and it can be done. And we try to do that here on the podcast as much as possible. But it requires actually understanding the ideological positions of the leftists you disagree with and being willing to be somewhat generous in your interpretations instead of just assuming all Marxists are uncritical Stalin fanboys or that all anarchists are suburban teens lashing out against their parents. And I would say that it also helps if you have a principled position yourself. If your position is as simplistic as Mao did nothing wrong or communism is just red fascism, then yeah, you kind of deserve to be laughed at and just trolled and memed on. But that is actually going to be a good portion of what we talk about tonight, I think. What is the actual principled positions of, you know, that MLs and anarchists hold, as opposed to the, the smooth brain takes of uninformed leftists or the straw men their opponents typically cynically argue against when they're memeing. So I think a good place to start would be to define anarchism. I will kind of start it off. I want to hand it off to Jaron to really give the better definition to, of anarchism, being the only anarchist on the podcast. But I will say that for my own part... Thanks to Jaron, I think I have a much better understanding of anarchism than I did before. Whereas in the past, I probably would have said it's a well-meaning but unrealistic ideology based on opposing all authority, and therefore will always lead to being steamrolled by capitalists. I now would probably say it's more of a system of thought used to critique authority in order to push it towards democratic control. And this is not to say that Jaron speaks for all anarchists, of course, but I think this concept of anarchism is much better and more realistic as an ideology than simply trying to remove all authority. And I'm also perfectly willing to admit that my previous interpretation of it before meeting Jaron was probably entirely due to my own ignorance about anarchists. So just to, again, try to be generous in my interpretations. But Jaron, if you want to give us your take on what anarchism is and if you could define it for us and our listeners. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the first thing that I would say is my political ideologies in general are not necessarily designed to pay homage to the ancestors. I think that 
political ideologies are fluid and they need to evolve. It's a necessity. So with anarchism, the initial conception of it was very, very similar to communism. It came around about the same time and the diaspora was very similar in how it went across the European continent, Central Asian continent, and then to the Far East. The only main, like mainstay difference that I would note is uh, syndicalism. So it was more focused on unifying small communities one at a time instead of large sweeping reforms using a vanguard or something like that. And this does have pros and cons. Now, out of that, we also have like anarcho-primitivism and all of this other shit that I don't really think is realistic. And I do find it utopian. I don't like it. And of course, even further, it mutates into anarcho-capitalism, whatever the fuck that is, which is, you know, I don't like authority unless the dude has money, which is what we already have. So to me, my interpretation of anarchism now and what I've coined as philosophical anarchism is a recognition that power structures will not go away. And in this way, I do break with Marxists too. I don't think a stateless society will ever happen. I think that we're going to be constantly working within the confines of various authoritarian structures, be they capitalist or communist, and only in the effort of distrusting authority permanently can we assure that they will work to our best benefit. The only other thing that I will say is I will have a brief moment of self-awareness before I go in on this podcast here. Some anarchists are horrible and have zero sense of nuance. If there's a cop beating the shit out of an unarmed black man and another cop is beating the shit out of a Nazi, I know which one I'd prefer. And in some scenarios, too, I'd even be the first to say that Marxism has a better ability to mobilize forces. However, that is not a sentiment that I place hope in here in the United States. Anarchism is not the answer to everything. And any anarchist that says it is kind of missed the whole fucking point, in my opinion. Sounds fair. I I would like to spend some time. I wrote a little bit on like the uh, the meme takes so we can go over a little bit like what people would call anarchities and the things that anarchists say about tankies. So we can go over the fallacious arguments and memes that uh, we hear all the time. And we could talk a little bit about that since we are starting off with defining the actual principled positions. So as far as authority, if I could just give my take on it, and then I'll hand it off to any of the other tankies that wants to talk about it as well. So I took a bit from On Authority by Engels. So he says, quote, A number of socialists have latterly launched a regular crusade against what they call the principle of authority. It suffices to tell them that this or that act is authoritarian for it to be condemned. This summary mode of procedure is being abused to such an extent that it has become necessary to look into the matter somewhat more closely. Authority, in the sense in which the word is used here, means the imposition of the will of another upon ours. On the other hand, authority presupposes subordination. Now, since these two words sound bad and the relationship which they represent is disagreeable to the subordinated party, the question is to ascertain whether there is any way of dispensing with it. Whether, given the conditions of present-day society, we could not create another social system in which this authority would be given no scope any longer and would consequently have to disappear. Uh, So then Engels in his... It's not even a long thing. I would recommend anybody go and read On Authority by Engels. I think it's only about four pages long. But he goes on in the middle of it to describe some examples where authority naturally arises out of organization. An organization for all kinds of purposes, whether it's turning cotton into clothing or making sure that trains don't crash into each other. And he describes that there will always be some form of direction at the hands of some central quote-unquote authority. At least if you want to accomplish anything beyond what an individual can do on their own. So getting to the end of his piece... The part more relevant to our discussion and probably more familiar to most leftists, Engels writes, quote, Why do the anti-authoritarians not confine themselves to crying out against political authority, the state? 
All socialists agree that the political state, and with it political authority, will disappear as a result of the coming social revolution. That is, that public functions will lose their political character and will be transformed into the simple administrative functions of watching over the true interests of society. But the anti-authoritarians demand that the political state be abolished at one stroke, even before the social conditions that give birth to it have been destroyed. They demand that the first act of the social revolution shall be the abolition of authority. Have these gentlemen ever seen a revolution? A revolution is certainly the most authoritarian thing there is. It is the act whereby one part of the population imposes its will upon the other part, by means of rifles, bayonets, and cannon. Authoritarian means, if such there be at all. And if the victorious party does not want to have fought in vain, it must maintain this rule by means of the terror which its arms inspire in the reactionists. Would the Paris Commune have lasted a single day if it had not made use of this authority of the armed people against the bourgeois? Should we not, on the contrary, reproach it for not having used it freely enough? And so I think that's the part that probably applies to most what you would call authoritarian Marxist. I would say that's probably our main critique of anarchists is that if you immediately get rid of authority, once you, I guess, successfully have a revolution and take power from the capitalists, if you just immediately transition into stateless, classless, hierarchyless kind of structure, uh, if you call it that a structure at all, then you get something like the Chaz, where it like lasted for a couple months, but because they weren't able to organize effectively, they weren't able to build some kind of real autonomous zone. But does anybody else want to have a take on authority and why they would prefer it as opposed to anarchism? For this episode, I'm permanently going to let other people speak before me because I'm insanely opinionated on all of this. I mean, so maybe this will be more contentious than, we, than I had expected. Like, that would actually make for a great episode if that's how it goes. So, To me, I think we have to consider the point in time when Marx was alive and when Kropotkin was alive and Bakunin and uh, all of these people that had these ideologies. It was a time of radical thought that emerged as sort of a child of the Enlightenment period. And they were performing thought experiments. And the idea of a stateless society was a thought experiment. In my mind, we have, what, five minutes on the doomsday clock because capitalism has put us in that position. There will not be a stateless society. I do not believe in it. But we can take wisdom from these voices of antiquity and use them to better our position now. But I think so long as we have this idea of a stateless society as the end goal, the entire thing is pointless. So yes, I do agree with Ingalls on this, that there, is, there has to be authoritarian structure in some way. However, I do not believe that authority under any means should be admired, put on a pedestal, or respected. I think that it's at best a bad necessity and at worst malcontent. And, you know, it's one of those things where I believe if you are in a position of authority, it should be questioned daily and you should be subject to the same material conditions as the people that you are ruling over. So, you know, a good example would be why the hell is Congress filled with millionaires? And then you can look at what they generally do in Congress and does it really represent you? They literally can't because their authority is not questioned. So it, it, to me, anarchism has moved from this idea of, and this is just my take, this is no other anarchist philosopher, it's moved from the end goal being, you know, this stateless society that we just buck all authority and just see what happens, to a mindset shift where we start saying, we should not respect people because they have power. In fact, quite the inverse. I can't disagree with that. No, I actually would be... Pretty minimal to all of that. Sterling, did you have something to say? We haven't heard you talk in a couple of weeks. Why don't you go for it? 
Just in general, before we get too deep into this, I think what we're going to discover is that this isn't going to be so much of a authoritarian versus anarchism discussion as it is that we're going to clarify both sides and show that they're practically the fucking same. (laughs) And it's like, I listen to Jaron talk and I'm like, I agree with every bit of that, but I'm not an anarchist. And it's like, the truth is... So many real views of real anarchists, and I hate to say things like real anarchists, but people who actually believe in it in more ways than coffee house debating. You know, people who do have some type of aspiration of what they think a better future would be. And like Jaron's saying, he's not even looking for the end-all, best future utopia. He's being realistic and saying, that's never going to happen because the truth is, There are way too many terrible people that exist in this world. And so long as any structure exists, people will take advantage of that. And unless we just find a way to identify all terrible people and just eliminate them, which, I mean, maybe some authoritarians believe in getting that extreme. The truth is you're never going to really get to utopia. And I agree with Jaron. And I've I've said this so many times before that the real difference between like anarchists who really believe in you know anarchism and not just uh, buzzwords and real authoritarians is simply a place in time we all wish we could get to that perfect utopia like even most authoritarian communists should still believe in communism succeeding so far that you can completely dissolve the state into something that would almost perfectly resemble the same thing anarchists believe in because That has to be all of our ultimate goal. I mean, the only reason that authoritarians would have armed forces is to be against the capitalists or people who would try to take advantage of the people. So if you did away with all of that, we would get to that perfect utopia. And I, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I feel like I'm just circling the wagon. But yeah, that's kind of my point is just we have so much fucking more in common than we don't have in common. I mean, 100%. And I think the whole calling it authoritarianism versus anarchism as the title of the episode is going to be mostly clickbait if uh, anybody <laughs> listens to this and hears this actually agree yeah, on yeah, most yeah. points. But I also think that, like, just to sort of reiterate or clarify what you were saying, like, I think anybody who calls himself a Marxist or a communist or whatever and actually does legitimately, like, worship authority, if they do have, like, the cult of personality around any leader of Stalin or whoever, you're just an edgy teen. Like, you're not really, like, a principled (laughs) leftist of any kind. And I get, there's a lot to be said for memeing. Like, I fucking meme all day, every day. So, like, it's funny, it's entertaining, but, like, again, we're going to talk a lot about the differences between memes and actual principled takes. Would you go, Ward? Yeah, no, I just, um, I agree with Sterling, like, that anarchists and communists that we have basically the same end goals it's just a difference of the means and i'd say like a big difference is the understanding and uh, of withering away of the state and the reality in which that looks like i feel like anarchist timeline they view it as okay you did the revolution why don't you hit the instant communism button <laughs> versus a more material analysis where we're like we can't because there's imperialist states trying to undermine us and we still have anti-revolutionaries and reactionaries within and we have to deal with those before we can push the instant communism button yeah so as far as like withering away of the state i'm just going to paraphrase a lot of this and i'll try and make it quick but this is what i had written and this is part of why 
I believe that the theory underlying in communism is incorrect. And dually, the theory underlying in anarchism is incorrect. And it's something that we do have to square with. What is it that communism has lacked in the past? Firstly, on the subject of classism, there's an overarching theme that must be addressed and has been seen by anarchists such as Emma Goldman upon her visit to the USSR. Namely, the creation of a state implies the creation of state workers, which in turn become a class unto themselves. Provisions and access to better necessities were given firstly to state officials in the Soviet system, then sailors, then the military, and the rest allocated to average people. Now, obviously, this was not ideal, nor was it even called as such by the government. It was understood that these conditions were the result of needing to fortify the USSR against capitalism by making sure that the state and military remained strong. But herein lies the fallacy of Marxism to many anarchists in modernity, such as myself. There is no realistic point at which capitalism will yield to the will of the people. The structure of communism will always be one of tiered assignment because it must be so to protect against capitalism. If we zoom out at globalized markets, modern military strengths, and the sheer size or complexity of world affairs, it becomes apparent that worldwide communism just is not in the cards. Even if it were, capitalism is a suicide bomber. The arbiters of its vulturous activity would sooner nuke the entire planet than allow worldwide equity. <laughs> so it must be that we treat authority, regardless of its source, as wholly corruptible. While we're on the subject of comparing dick sizes with capitalists, I'm going to make this quick again, but Stalin was a massive victim to this mentality. And even oh, no. though he didn't do this intentionally, he, he hurt the life quality of so many Soviet citizens. Specifically, he was not a fan of what we would call in the West bland brutalism and wanted the cities of the USSR to be more functional as well as more ornate. His programs to create metro systems were well-intentioned, but also ill-conceived. The Moscow metro universities and government buildings all received facelifts between the 30s and 50s, but much of the USSR was made to deal with cramped housing that wasn't renovated in tandem with these things. In order to look more successful to the West, Stalin sacrificed the proletariat. Mind you, I understand that running a, a huge country as big as the USSR is no easy task, so I'll credit Stalin with likely doing what he thought was best. But that's the thing is, as far as the state withering away, all that is to say, I don't think that it's realistic. And I think that even if it were, if we hit that critical point where worldwide communism could be a thing, that the militial powers of the West would hit the self-destruct button. We're in a serious catch-22 because the people that came up with state dissolution came up with it at a time when nuclear warheads were not a thing. They would sooner destroy everything than give it to us. So we need to destroy the West and then we can have <laughs> worldwide communism. Got it. That might be possible. See? And then, gee, fire when ready. And this is the developing theory of Marxism. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, not to get into like future predictions, but I'd say we're more likely to see capitalism just continually adapt and transform into something that like could even be unrecognizable to us or even adopt elements of communism, because that seems to be what it does is it will co-opt elements of other political economy systems in order to just keep itself alive. And so if that means, you know, giving people UBI, if that means doing some forms of things that socialism and communism would do in order to keep people just happy enough to let it limp along and keep people under its thumb, then that's what will happen. And if it did get to such a breaking point that it really was threatened by worldwide communism, then yeah, I would see nuclear war as a preferable option for the capitalists than giving up their wealth. They're already building their bunkers. They're planning for it. It's all conjecture too. So yeah.
Yeah, capitalism's plan B is fascism. It's like not even plan B, it's like plan A.2. It's like it's right there. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, I guess, some of the main points of disagreement between anarchists and MLs. And so I guess the obvious one would just be the use of authority. And we've covered it a little bit already, but just, I guess, to clarify it, I think even anarchists, if you press them on it, will say that authority should be used in some situations. Uh, Ward brought up the great example last week in the episode of the anarchists in the, the subreddit talking about making anarchist laws and then killing people who don't follow them. And that would, I would assume, apply to fascists because obviously not going to be compatible with anarchism. Um, so, I mean, right there, like, they're, we're kind of just repeating ourselves from last week, but Jaron, you made a good observation. Like, just be a fucking tanky at that point. Like, you just are a tanky. Like, that's what we probably agree on. In practice, where we have, like, disagreements is when you have existing socialist states and anarchists criticize them, saying that they're using authority against the wrong people. I want to think of a different example other than Uyghurs. Does anybody else have a, a different example that they would like to use? Because we harp on that quite a bit. Do we want to talk about Tibet? Yeah, I mean, is anybody particularly informed on Tibet? I only know, like, very broad strokes about it. And Tibet, Hong Kong, yeah. Hong Kong could be good. Yeah, yeah Hong Kong could be good. Yeah, no, I, I always like the Tibet one, because you still have a lot of people, even on the left, that are, like, the defend Tibet and everything. Mm-hmm. When it was like, dude, before the 1950s, it was 95% of the population was slaves. Yeah. And it's like, you want to say free Tibet? Like, dude, Mao already did. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Tibet's a good example. You know, you have leftists, anarchists of uh, rad libs of all stripes that are not MLs or authoritarian communists, and they do have a genuine sympathy for Tibet. I definitely did when I was a younger liberal and I didn't know much about it. And you think that the Dalai Lama is such a good guy. He seems like this old peace and love kind of dude. But then if you look into the history of Tibet, like they had slaves. They literally had slaves up until Mao freed them. The, again, the point of the contention is saying that Tibet is its own territory and should not be quote-unquote colonized by China. But if you believe in the use of authority against the forces of reaction, I would say that the Marxist take is that China is a Marxist state that is using authority to stop people who would uphold a system of subjugation of literal slaves. And so in that way, we would probably disagree on that. And that would be, I guess, probably the most relevant modern example for most people. If you think the Dalai Lama is a good guy, he begged the world to forgive Pinochet. Oh, fuck that, dude. That's pretty dark. Yeah, and he said that the only good reason that a woman should ever be the Dalai Lama is if they were attractive. Gross, dude. Well, damn. damn. I do want to kind of say one thing that, because I don't think uh, everything we say tonight should just be friendly, so I'm going to have to dunk a few times. Do it. So, So... One thing I will say about the difference between like MLs or tankies and anarchists that I think is a fair take and is pretty insulting to anarchists is practicality in the sense of what your everyday ML does and what your everyday anarchist does. And what I mean is everyone gets into these ideologies at a at a baby level and it's it's super hypothetical it's you there's so many pieces to put together in any ideology that you don't know what it is until you're really years into understanding it and you get past the buzzwords and you get past the exciting stuff and you get into the boring dull 
actual components and the complexities. And I feel like MLs, you know, they kind of start off with the Stalin did nothing wrong and, you know, uh, carrying around the little red book and all <laughs> the real, the really funny things that, you know, tankies fucking do that are more so with the younger tankies. And then when you meet the older tankies who have been in it for a while, they are very supportive of China, obviously Cuba. That They become very supportive of countries that are actually doing things, and they critically support things that exist. And that's where I think a big difference is with anarchists, because I feel like whereas tankies eventually kind of come to reality, your large majority of anarchists that I've known and have I hate to paint so broadly, but the large majority of my of anarchists I've known start in that anarchy kitty level, which is where I started. And they either go so far down the theoretical, philosophical rabbit hole that there's not possibly a country that could exist that they could identify with and actually try to find some unity with. That's my thing. MLs do eventually find some countries and some things that exist that they can identify with and they can support. And I feel like anarchists really, they just stay in that honestly just impossibility theoretical loophole, in my opinion. I feel like us MLs, we eventually get out of that loophole. And even if what we support isn't uh, perfect, it's at least not a, a revolving door of the same shit over and over. Yeah, I mean, tying into that, I will say, this isn't even particularly relevant to this episode, but it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, ever since I heard Matt Chrisman say it on one of his uh, live streams that he does. But, like, it's something that we should all realize is that most people's interaction with politics is purely emotional because we don't have any fucking control. Like, we can sit here all day and talk about all of our takes and all of our things that we support, but that support is literally just our voices. And whatever we are, whatever limited actions we have in everyday life, you know, if I want to actually support an ML cause, all I can really do as an individual is go basically do some organizing or charity work or mutual aid work or some kind of direct action like that. But even that is very limited. And I'm not changing overall systems around the world or in the country. Yeah. even. And so everybody should just realize that, you know, what we're dealing with is a whole lot of it's mostly circle jerking, I should say. You know, it's like yeah. even our support for China. Like, what am I doing supporting China? Like, I haven't donated any money to the CPC or the PLA or anything. It's like I'm supporting China by saying good things about them on a podcast or on an Instagram meme page. Go ahead, Stoke. So I think this is a really important part. When I'm talking to like a liberal or to an anarchist or even to a Republican or, you know, someone who is not pro-China, this is a huge country that I can actually have a conversation about that. Maybe I don't know the most about China, but I know enough to at least uh, dispel some ridiculous myths people have about, you know, child sweatshops and the Uyghurs, which and I'm not even saying all of that shit is bullshit, but Adrian Zinn sure as fuck is bullshit. Yeah. And just giving some people that information. I mean, I've given that to liberals, conservatives, just giving some information of, hey, most of what you believe comes from straight up fake shit. And I just suggest that you get your own opinions about it. And then I present them with a few. And my overall point is typically, look, if the U.S. was exactly set up like China was, the world would be a better place. So it's, to me, undeniable that China as a country is far superior to the, to the United States as far as on a humanitarian level, as far as having the opportunity to break free from capitalism. And 
that's something that I can actually do. And I can sit down and talk to someone about something as simple as an existing huge country. And I feel like that's one disadvantage anarchists have is they don't have that kind of practical conversation they can have with someone. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are criticizing socialism by 2050 from a country that's doing socialism by literally never. (laughs) Yeah. But go ahead, Jaron. So first off, I, I will concede to Sterling that a lot of anarchists do use the authority bad card to ignore things that have to do with, you know, regional nuance, demographic nuance, things like that. So, yeah, they'll look at somewhere like Tibet and say, oh, well, they were taken over by China, so authority bad and don't look any further into it. And, yeah, that's that's a common thing. But at the same time, I can apply that same thing back to Marxists and communists. Is there still cherry picking going on? Like if when I criticize China, for the record, I am not comparing it to the U.S. Because as we mentioned before, read the Caitlin Johnston article. You cannot compare those two things. It is impossible. One is going to be the death of the world, and the other one just has other fucked up shit going on, but it's nowhere near like the first one. Um, But like, you know, on the subject of even just looking at the social scoring system, you know, if you have a drug offense, if you smoked weed, if you engage in sex work, if you commit larceny, and remember, this is a big anarchist thing with abolition. No two crimes are the same. Committing larceny because you're a bored teenager is different than committing larceny because you're starving. If you do any of these things, the Chinese social scoring system does not differentiate them. How many of us smoke weed? How many of us support yeah, sex work? Never, dude. So <laughs> definitely not right now. Um, just, but, just, to cl- just really quick on that. Yeah, shoot. Oh, on, on the scoring system, I will say this. Uh, yes, you're right that the scoring system is kind of impacted a little unfairly because a lot of things kind of have the same impact. Not exactly the same impact, but they also give the opportunity to bring it back up. If you do, say, have a drug offense, that's not necessarily something that you carry with you forever like we do in the United States because I can just go out and do some goodwill and do a little charity work and bring my social score right back up. So they also give the opportunity to correct mistakes you've made. Now, as far as getting the specifics off of the social score, like if you wanted to see if one of us specifically had a drug charge, that's not as public information as people talk about. Uh, Some employers, you know, uh, I think there's like, it's all through the government. When you want to request that information, you fill out specific forms and you turn it in and they determine whether or not you have access to it. It's not like I can pull out a fucking app and look at everyone's criminal record. And I think a lot of people that are critical of the social scoring system think it's that simple. But you're right. I just wanted to add that to the back end. Sure. And that that's well warranted because the United States does not have a way to reconcile mistakes that you've made in the past at all. But at the same time, I would be remiss to say that, you know, sex work and drug use and things like that, those shouldn't be crimes to begin with. So that's my beef with China is, is I think that that's, that's completely inappropriate. It's counter to progressivism and it alienates the proletariat in many ways. But, you know, the thing is like, if we're going to go in on China, I have a bit written for that too. <laughs> so just, this, um, this may not be as friendly as we thought. <laughs> let me just wrap up what I was saying about, um, yeah. as far as like our engagement in politics being mostly emotional, I will say that there is something to be said for, putting out opinions and changing people's minds. And obviously that's 
what we hope to do here as much as we are able to. Obviously, with our limited reach, I obviously don't think that we are going to single-handedly change American sentiment against existing socialist countries. You know, we're talking about China a lot now, but in general, I think the sentiment toward existing socialist countries, whether they're China, Cuba, DPRK, whatever, is very harsh. And I don't think that we are going to really make any kind of significant difference in that. But if we can change a few minds, great. I would consider our mission accomplished. And there is something... If enough people's minds are changed, I guess, I don't know what the consensus is that was the Vietnam War ended by popular sentiment? Like, is that how it ended? Was the people of the U.S. just realized that this was not a winnable war? And that's eventually why the U.S. just kind of uh, fizzled out of it and just eventually withdrew their troops? Or was there more to it than that that I'm just not understanding? Because it's another subject that I haven't looked into super deeply. But even if that's not the case, that is, a, I guess, a potential scenario. Like, it would be great if enough people in the U.S. became class conscious enough, aware enough of the truth about communism as opposed to what they've been fed ever since the first Cold War, that it changed actual U.S. policy toward existing socialist countries. I guess that would be the ultimate goal if we were to take our emotional engagement with politics to the next level and actually change people's minds and have that translate into action on a national scale. So that's all I really wanted to say about just people's engagement with politics. And I think. Um, where that ties into what Sterling was saying about anarchists not, quote unquote, supporting existing socialist countries. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence to say that that is a useful tool for the U.S., uh, for the foreign policy apparatus of the U.S. when it comes to existing socialist countries, because it is super convenient to have leftists not only fighting amongst each other, but also having no existing socialist country that they could look up to as a good example, and then they could support even emotionally as something that stands up to U.S. global hegemony. And I think that's our main point is why we even say things like we support China or we support Cuba or just support the DPRK. It's like we're not actually doing anything tangible to support these states, but we just understand that they are presenting an actual viable alternative to just the point. dominance of U.S. capitalism around the world. And so that's, I guess, where we would fall as Marxist Leninists or whatever. To me, the only thing I'll say is the overall theme that I'm sensing is that the anarchist rejection of existing socialist states is due to a certain amount of ignorance on their part, which I do agree with. But what I would put forth is that the same thing can be said of Marxists, albeit for different reasons. And again, in terms of do I support anything that rejects Western hegemony? Yes. 100%. I'm a Jew that supports Palestine, for Christ's sake. <laughs> you know, but to me, if we are to expect the full synthesis of what we see in somewhere like China to get this socialism by 2050 or whatever, we have to be overly harsh of these things and be honest with ourselves. And that's not something that I've seen from a lot of communists. The, the thing that I had written on this is just one paragraph. And I'm interested to see what you guys think of the quote at the end, because I would love to like, generally get your take on it. Let's discuss consent. Capitalism has significant criticism from the left on this matter, using the rhetoric that workers are forced into substandard labor practices because they have no choice. This is unabashedly true. Yet we can turn this on its head by looking at modern day China. Of course, there are Chinese reforms that I find completely worthwhile, but the quote unquote phase of capitalism transitioning to socialism is a repugnant concept to me. What it suggests is essentially generations of sacrificial lambs doomed to toil and piss and misery, all for the sake of some hypothetical better future. For the Chinese individuals that polluted their Yellow and Yangtze rivers, did they have a choice in the matter? For those that developed lung conditions and tumors due to lack of environmental regulations, did they give consent? 
even if they had dissent to offer. The Chinese government restricts firearms on a massive scale, which is counter to Marxism, so they couldn't fight back if they tried. Regarding this gross abuse of power, I submit that China has many or more billionaires as the U.S., depending on which sort you cite, and Xi Jinping is one of them. A quote from him in 2020 as COVID ravaged the world and China added 257 more billionaires to their roster just last year. This is a quote from Xi Jinping. Noting that China is committed to seeing that the market plays the decisive role in resource allocation and the government plays its role better, Xi said. The practices in reform have made us realize that we must under no circumstance turn our back on addressing the blindness of the market and we must not return to the old path of a planned economy. It doesn't sound very comradely. Shots fired. (laughs) Bars. There's fucking bars just to put that out there. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that. So again, this is why we love Jaron so much because (laughs) if there's ever been a really principled anarchist critique of China, that is it. Because what I see all day (laughs) online is, oh, it's just a fascism with red flags, man. Oh, they're just as bad as the Nazis because they're genocide and Uyghurs, man. Like, uh, and no, that's word. fucking wrong. <laughs> that's incorrect. <laughs> yeah, I will start by saying I fucking love you, Jaren. <laughs> I have spent <laughs> so much time recently just debunking myths about China that I haven't been able to like even get into theory that I've wanted to. And I haven't even been able to have an actual fair critique conversation of China. And thank you for bringing this. Um, In terms of a market economy, that is just right along with Deng Xiaoping and his theory, you know, opening up the economy and starting a um, a social market. You know, Uh, his theory was we have people starving. We have people struggling. If we cannot provide for our people, how can we prove that socialism is better than capitalism? And so that's why he started the the market economy and opened up the economy for capitalist um, revenue and investment so that he can use that investment to develop the economy and bring about the changes towards socialism and the commitments of socialism for 2050. Um, I see those movements as, yes, that China was exploited by capitalist labor, but at the same time, China used all of that money and investment in building infrastructure and eliminating absolute poverty. And, you know... Productive forces go burr. Exactly, exactly. So that goes right along with Deng Xiaoping thought. I hate a lot of those words. <laughs> like, like, like so, so much of I, I take it. Some of that was actual quotes from him. Um, got it. Yeah, but, uh, like the whole like, if we can't provide for our people, how can we know, prove just, that social? That is him. It sounds and, like such a politician trying to convince you mm-hmm. to to do something you really shouldn't do. And that's that's one thing about China that always rubs me the wrong way when I hear like Dean quotes or she uh, quotes is like it, it's always that politician talk where it's like like this is where I line with Jaron where it's like you know the whole uh, socialism by 2050 and they massage in uh, you know the capitalist components they're they're going to use and that's why a lot of us MLs are critically supportive at best I don't think anyone should just be saying oh that's the blueprint that's how you do it I think that's kind of our point is at least this bad system is not as bad. <laughs> I'd agree with that. 
Yeah, like just like I said, like sweatshops and stuff like that, like that was a thing that existed for a period of time, you know, just like the whole suicide nets around factories. That was something that existed for a period of time before in Taiwan. But yeah, but before they decided, you know, fuck that. We're not like it was an experimental zone with like more unfettered capitalism. And so they decided to stop that experiment. So there's no more suicide nets. Um but in regards to billionaires, I'd say the existence of billionaires in China doesn't mean it's not Marxist. Um, I think that also goes along with Deng Xiaoping's uh, social market. But I have seen at least multiple instances where China at least holds its billionaires accountable. You know, they will straight up sentence billionaires to death for fraud or yeah, corruption, shit like that. Like they'll straight up sentence them to death. That's something I you'll never see in any capitalist country. And they should sentence them to death for being billionaires. But ideally, yes. <laughs> maybe yeah, maybe twenty fifty one that comes around. Don't get me wrong. Like when I'm splitting hairs like this, it's for the purpose of refining theory and refining yeah. the way that people look at things for the betterment of both or whatever ideology, you know, at a certain point labels mean nothing to me. Um, But, you know, to me, I think that uh, does China, China handle some of its shit better? Yes. At least it's open to changing conditions for people. Um, Do I still believe that putting people up as sacrificial lambs to capitalism, it was fucked up. Yes. And hopefully they learned from that. But the only other thing I'll say is, you know, trusting socialism by 2050 in the hands of a literal billionaire does make me raise an eyebrow yeah. and it should make other people raise an eyebrow. Absolutely. But here we're the minimum wage at $15 by 2050. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a little different. <laughs> I don't have um, super strong feelings about the billionaires in China. I know it may sound like a weird thing to say because I've heard both sides of it. Like if you follow Caleb Malpin, I don't know, I'm sure if that's how you actually pronounce his last name, but he had a take that was really controversial and pissed a lot of people off. And he was saying that China should have billionaires or, and socialism should have billionaires because you should be lifting up the productive forces and you should be lifting up the quality of life of everyone to the point that a billionaire is even possible in real socialism. And I would like to hear his actual nuanced what? explanation of that. I mean, so it's a really long and crazy that's explanation. <laughs> well, that guy, um, Alex, Comrade Psyduck, uh, he explained it pretty well to me and it made sense at the time. And I could see what he's saying. Like from what I understand, the, the basis of it is that China is doing that because the alternative would be to follow a more idealistic dogmatic Marxist path and then fall to the West. And then we wouldn't have any kind of alternate force in the world to counter the U S and if you are improving your society so much that you are lifting up the conditions of workers and the people doing it are billionaire communists who are also still held accountable to the communist party to the point that they can be executed if they are found to be corrupt and not actually improving their workers' lives if and not you actually are a billionaire. You're inherently corrupt out the gate though. Sound like an anarchist buddy. Sound like, like an anarchist. <laughs> That's how I feel. I, yeah. <laughs> And this, this is where even tankies, I, I suppose, can have different views. Like, I could not possibly imagine anyone making a argument to me that I would ever agree with that 
was well, hold on now it makes me want to look it up i want to look up okay. caleb malvin and see if i can find like a quicker explanation of what he says before i just like totally straw man him and fuck yeah, it all up yeah. but you guys can go ahead and talk while i because look this up my thing is like even if you could create billionaires under say socialism it's either because of it, exploitation or inflation like i'm not really sure what other option you could create a billionaire so I'm, i don't see why you ever want either of those things yeah, yeah, that's absolutely fair critique. So, yeah. so I'd love to have him explain his take because that that'd be my thing. Like, if we're not talking exploitation and we're not talking inflation, then where where does this billion dollars or like, what person creates so much resource in the world that they should have a billion dollars in the sense of what we think of a billion dollars is, which is like enough resource to feed you know a city for a long fucking time like why should anyone ever have single-handedly have access to that much unless it's like literal government allocation and they're you know kind of zoning and deciding where these funds are going to support other people which would not technically be a billionaire that would be money going out the door so this the actual it's a tweet actually by caleb malpin and he says quote if you declare a maximum on wealth you are no longer a marxist the goal of socialism is to create so much abundance in society that the need for the state, all class divisions, and all coercion can wither away. Quote, abolish billionaires is an anti-Marxist statement. And that's what he says. I don't know if he expands on that somewhere else that I can't find at the moment, but that's what he says in short. That's right. interesting. I'll say I this. Dis- yeah. I disagree with that so hard. <laughs> so hard. So hard. Same. So this episode's and getting spicier than I thought. The, I like it. The most important thing. The most important thing that I think he's just totally missing is that if you're truly a Marxist, if you're truly a communist, what well, you don't believe in a money system to fucking begin with. Like there should not be a technical currency under perfect communism. So how the fuck could there be a billionaire if there's not a currency? So you're saying you should just press the socialism button? They should just do it right away? Like, <laughs> <laughs> there's only two options, right, man. I'm, mo- I'm moving over to Jared's side. Let me get an A tattoo. What about when Marx said to use the tools of capitalism to take down capitalism? Yeah, and not keep those tools. <laughs> I know, but you also want to criticize the social market economy of China. Let me also say just real quick. One of the questions that we got in our Q&A section that we haven't addressed yet because it's a longer question that really requires some good research and some thought put into it before we can get to it. So that's why I was putting it off. But someone asked, is it necessary to go through the stage of capitalism before you can transition into some kind of any kind of form of socialism or communism? Um, Because I think that that is something that has been tried in the past. It's going straight from feudalism to communism. I think that was basically what the USSR was doing was they just had an agrarian feudal for several feudal agrarian countries and then just transitioned right to communism without going through the stage of capitalism. And it was a big point of contention whether you need to have capitalism. And then I, I don't know what the exact thought behind it is. Maybe you have to make the working class so disillusioned by capitalism that they will be willing to accept communism if they see how bad capitalism actually is in practice. Yeah, I'd I'd say, isn't socialism a reaction to capitalism? Yeah, technically. Socialism is just the in-between between capitalism and communism. So socialism is not the best one to use here as a comparison. We should be talking about communism specifically, but most civilizations start off communist. I mean, tribes are inherently communist. 
uh, they work with each other and make what they need and supply each other with what they need. Uh, most civilizations don't start off feudal or, or capitalist. And I think it's kind of a back and forth and it just depends where the needle falls. Yeah, I feel I feel that social socialism, like correct me if I'm wrong, was the reaction to capitalism and even like how you were saying, Mike, that some Marxist thought is that you have to experience capitalism to get to socialism because due to capitalism's nature and its exploitation, that is what's going to allow the rise of class consciousness to prep the stage for socialism. I want to hear what Jaron had to say. Go ahead, Jaron. Yes. So like hanging on the Chinese billionaire subject and using tools of capitalism to dismantle it. I'm not saying that's, that's right or wrong, but what I am going to say is the world is just fucking complicated. And this is what I mean by that is, okay, so these, these Chinese billionaires start amassing a shitload of wealth, you know, round about in the 90s and early 2000s, largely as a result of China being accepted into the WTO, which the Clintons had been campaigning for, and then I think Bush actually did it. Um, and what that really meant, um, and why Clinton campaigned so hard for it, is places like Walmart, who are tied to the Clinton family, could now outsource their labor to China. So the rise of the Chinese billionaire is tied to the fact that China entered the WTO, right? But here's the blowback from using that capitalism thing to their benefit is now Walmart has higher demand than ever for cheaper products, which means that the military industrial complex has to work twice as hard to mine precious metals in Afghanistan, to rape and pillage the world, to get these products, the raw products, to China to be manufactured to come to the U.S. and be sold in Walmart. So there is a cost to using those tools because those tools are inherently corrupt. And yes, it did strengthen China and it did put U.S. Uh, hegemony in jeopardy as well it should be. But at the same time, it strengthened the U.S. It was not a one-sided deal. If you make a deal with the devil, you're going to get your due. And that's exactly what happened in this scenario. Like, yes, you know, China has these billionaires they can flaunt and say, like, look, we can do just as good as the U.S. And the U.S. ends up inflating its military budget. I don't even know how much since like year 2000, approximately, uh, largely as a result of this consumer demand. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the great opening for China definitely strengthened U.S. economy and U.S. world power. But I will also show you, look at how weakened the U.S.'s power is now that we're trying to force a Cold War with China. China has gotten to, especially the last couple of years, China has accelerated its economy so much that it has cut down the time that it was going to surpass the U.S. economy as the world's greatest economy by three years, dropping it from 10 to seven now. Can I just say I love this conversation? Dude, me too. I'm fucking loving this, dude. <laughs> like, this conversation is so great. Jaren, if you want to talk about China anytime, please. Like, oh, I'm, I'm I, totally I know now. quite a bit. Like, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I definitely know more than most. If you ever want to talk, please. Dude, I, I would not I would love to hear podcast if I didn't agree with you guys yeah. with most things. Like, dude, I, I just <laughs> love, like, honestly, even though we do disagree on aspects of china like it is so refreshing to finally hear any fair critique versus yeah, just the well, yeah, normal Western propaganda talking points everybody here is dumb as hell yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah Not it's good. so good so while i absolutely agree with you that 
the great opening definitely led to strengthening of U.S. power and its military industrial complex that in the long run now, looking at it, it has definitely weakened its position overall, especially to the point where you're looking at African countries now during the Belt and Road Initiative who are trying to adopt Chinese, uh, China's economic model, China 2.0. <laughs> All right, let's get into a little bit of... Um Let's get into some of the spicier stuff as if that wasn't spicy enough. Let's get into like, right. the, uh, like damn, it gets spicy. <laughs> I didn't think it would be this spicy. I thought we were going to agree on a lot more stuff. <laughs> I, I do want to talk a little bit about like just some of the, the meme discourse because Ooh. there's a few that stick out of my mind. Like, and well, I noticed that here in the, the show notes, Jaron did a lot of work, really doing a good job of dispelling a lot of these talking points, which I definitely want to get to. Hell yeah, um, brother. So let me just say right off the bat, my absolute favorite off left versus anarchist meme. It was literally an anarchist in the form of a ball, like in you know, one of those Poland balls. So it's a red and black ball. And the, the anarchist says, authority is bad. We shouldn't use it. And then on the other side, there is the capitalist pig and a soldier, like a U.S. Army soldier. And they just say, oh, that's great. I hope you don't mind if we use it instead. And it's, it's so simple and it's so good. And that's why I love it because, you know, and why I love memes in general, because they can get an idea across that is pretty complicated and nuanced, but they can do it. Yeah. So simply. And that's perfect. Like if you are not willing to use authority to resist the forces of reaction, if you, you know, even if you have a successful revolution, if you're not willing to use authority against the capitalists, the fascists, the reactionaries, they will absolutely use it instead. And so you just have to be aware of that fact. So, I mean, is that is that kind of in line with the the whole memeing of anarchists being CIA agents, I'm assuming? <laughs> it's sort of in line with that. I would say like the other I, bit. I hate authority. And then he's like, you're hired. And this is CIA. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I got something for that. But uh, I mean, I did write up a short paragraph about the CIA allied criticism of, of anarchists. <laughs> I mean, let me just go through here. So a common criticism that MLs will level at anarchists is that they're CIA agents or some form of this talking point. And again, we can talk about the meme discourse as opposed to the more nuanced critique. But the simple version would be ML saying the anarchists are online are actually federal agents posing as leftists, which is not impossible, but probably very unlikely. That is extremely unlikely. (laughs) Well, I mean, like that, I agree. Probably unlikely. (laughs) As nefarious as U.S. intelligence agencies are, I don't imagine that they devote a lot of time and budget to arguing in comment sections. But I could be wrong. (laughs) But the more principled explanation. (laughs) <laughs> the more principled explanation would be more along the lines of the Caitlin Johnston article that we mentioned in the last episode titled opposing all governments equally is supporting the most powerful government. Again, I highly recommend reading it. Mm, it's a, like she's a fantastic writer with ironclad takes, but the main idea is that in claiming to oppose all forms of authority, anarchists and self-proclaimed anti-imperialists are unintentionally supporting the worst culprit of imperialism the world has ever known by placing like the U S and other nations on equal terms of atrocities they're severely underestimating the outsized effect the U.S. has had on the world for centuries and also demonizing any other country that could potentially resist the American empire. So for my own part, I don't think it's outlandish to say that the U.S. would have an interest, obviously, in painting existing socialist countries as dictatorships under the thumb of cartoonishly evil tyrants. I think we're all familiar with Cold War propaganda, but also that it would seek to sow division in leftist movements, as they have traditionally been very successful in fighting capitalism. So while we can argue over the amount of trouble the government agencies would go through to create and stoke this conflict among leftists, I would say that it's more important to simply realize that the danger in repeating the same criticisms about socialist states that the far right and capitalists like to use. So again, quoting Engels on authority here, he says, quote, therefore, either one of two things, either the anti-authoritarians don't know what they're talking about, in which case they are creating nothing but confusion, or they do know, 
And in that case, they are betraying the movement of the proletariat. In either case, they serve the reaction. Shots fired. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I wanted to bring up is like, if anybody, and I actually encourage people to go to this, do this, like Google anarchists that have been co-opted by the CIA. Cause yeah, it's a thing. And we, we have even talked about that in previous episodes, but part of what I would want to iterate to anyone who brings that up is the Marxist attitude that that ideology is somehow insulated from being co-opted is just as stupid as it is dangerous. And, you know, I even have a list of people here prepared that were Marxists that were co-opted, including uh, Jay Lovestone. He was the leader of the Communist Party in the 90s, CIA agent. Um, all of these people I'm about to list are from the KGB. Oleg Gordievsky, Pierre Derybin, Anatoly Golitsyn, uh, Victor Shemov. There's like a couple others. Elizabeth Bentley, who was part of the Communist Party USA, ended up being an asset of the FBI. And the National Student Association was a CIA front. And that was a, a socialist and communist organization in the 60s. Even more recently, one of the founders of BLM, this was fucking disturbing because I donated to this, used the Secure Act Blue Fund to buy a $1.5 million mansion. And she said she's a Marxist. So, yeah, I was going to bring that up too. Yeah, it fucking sucks. And, yeah, you, you know, I'm not saying this to shoot shots at the commies. What I'm saying is as soon as you think that being co-opted is something unique to anarchists, you will be co-opted or you will follow someone who is. Nothing is bulletproof. We will absolutely fall to this because they are crafty. And as soon as the infighting takes that low road of saying like, oh, anarchists, yeah, anarchists love the fucking CIA or vice versa. <laughs> That's what the CIA wants you to do. Yeah, True. It just shows the pervasiveness of the CIA more than anything, more than, oh, yeah, anarchists are susceptible to the CIA or, yeah, also Marxists are, can be co-opted as well. It just shows the pervasiveness of the CIA more than anything and lack of education and so-called principled Marxist or anarchists. And even if it's not the CIA directly, they're talking points. Like the rhetoric that they purposely put out and whether it gets used intentionally or unintentionally by so-called leftists of, of any, any stripe. Yeah. I'm glad I'm, you mentioned those here because I didn't know about a lot of those or most of them, I should say. A lot of the, uh, I think like the Communist Party ones, you're, you're talking about that was right after the McCarthy era where they were actually started to prosecute people. And some of those may have just turned for rolling over. Would that be correct? Not all of them, no. Uh, Jay Lovestone, that, that was actually in the 90s. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that, so that was far after the... Yeah, the, these are not antiquated. Not all of them are antiquated uh, examples. And, you know, even I have my own feelings on... I know Ward has expressed this too, like, you know, with PCUSA and the SRA. I would like to see them back political causes more, but I understand why they don't. But at the same time, if they don't want to take that initiative and be on the front line, I do question what the point is a bit. Yeah. I mean, from my understanding, it's like they're doing it in like that backdoor kind of way. Like they're just kind of skirting the law, like, you know, going back to our firearms episode. It's like yeah. if I want to have a short barrel rifle, well, I can do it, but I have to skirt the law a little bit and I don't technically have a short barrel rifle. So if the SRA or the PCUSA wants to start a revolutionary organization, they can put out revolutionary agitprop, but then say that we are just an education group and we're not a political action group. We don't actually endorse any protests or direct actions, 
but then do everything right up to that point so that they can skirt under the law and not get either outright shut down or subverted to the point that they become ineffective. Sure. Is that something that they're doing, though? I don't know. While I'm in the SRA, I don't have any kind of leadership position. I don't like do any work for them. I just that was my impression. And mostly from what Gray said when he was on the on our episode about firearms, talking about how they're classified what they are because other groups that were more openly radical, more openly advocating for direct action were immediately shut down or destroyed in some form by the government. So that makes sense. I'm going to say if they're doing that, that's just based. Like, it's definitely not what me and Jaren, like, expect of them, but it's better than being a group where socialists can commiserate. Yeah, I mean, it's not DSA, like, shit. <laughs> Cosper, I would like to hear from, I would like to hear from Cosper, well, go ahead, Sterling, but I want to hear from Cosper and see if you have any takes. That's, that's, that's what also, what, yeah, that's also what I was going to say yeah. is uh, I wanted to, A, have Cosper kind of give us where they stand ideologically. As well as, you're no longer part of the DSA, correct? Uh, that is correct. I think uh, ideologically, as far as all this authoritarian and uh, anarchism goes, I think that approaching the system or the superstructure in any form of dualism, which means to promote one as a superior option as the other, I think is a little bit, uh, I guess not as advantageous as approaching as open-mindedly as you could is. I think that the greatest thing that you can do is adapt yourself to whatever circumstance you're currently involved within culturally and go from there you know in the united states i don't know if authoritarianism is typically the way these things are going to be built up in a way that we can overthrow what is going on right now i think that levels of local community building similar to like an anarchist ideology might be something that's beneficial as beneficial as it would be during like the end game or like when shit really gets rolling and you know it's like oh it's revolution time or whatever's happening where authoritarianism might be beneficial in that state as well i think that uh, any attempt to limit oneself to any ism is going to be only detrimental to the person who's doing that to themselves ideologically so as i've said before by people who ask me like uh, what kind of marxism should i get into just learn good politics that work it doesn't matter what you're reading as far as it's like oh reading lenin that's great we'll go read some mao go read some deleuze go read hegel go read as many people as you can get your hands on within you know the time that you have as far as the dsa stuff goes uh i decided to not be a part of the dsa anymore for a multiplicity of reasons obviously i think a couple of them were just the general reasons of organizing that don't work out and they, they seem to be counterproductive. So, yeah. So I have a, a good question for the room, and this is definitely philosophical and dialectic in nature. But this is close to my heart because it's part of the reason that I do call myself an anarchist. Is Do you or does anyone here think that, for lack of a better word, the human condition is suited to take on positions of authority? And I know we all hate the term human condition, but just roll with it for me. Okay, yeah, so I mean, you go, just you let go me ahead. real quick. There is, <laughs> there's definitely some truth to the saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like, that's such an old hat, like, tired ass saying for like pseudo political hacks. But I think that there is some truth to it because as soon as people are given positions of power, it does tend to corrupt them. They do tend to abuse it. So I really can't dispute that. 
But at the same time, I think there is still is a difference between people who are principled wielders of power who really do care about the working class. And I think they would have to be communists to even be in that position to begin with. But yeah, I mean, again, that kind of gets back to what we were mentioning in the last Q&A episode about like the responsibility of the working class to be class conscious and like an anarchist, constantly critique authority and make sure that it's going in the right direction and not just becoming another corrupt capitalist enterprise. But go ahead, Ward. Yeah. So, Jaron, what I feel like you were going at with that question is exactly what Mike said. The like power corrupts. I don't believe so. Authority does not corrupt. If that were true, every single teacher would be corrupt. Every single doctor that <laughs> above their patient would be corrupt. It's just not the case. It's just examples like across the board, like, you know, teacher student relations, like not every single one is corrupted. You know, there are good teachers. There are good doctors. There are good nurses, you know, that that have the authority position over the person that they are taking care of. And I think that the idea that power corrupts is reductionist. Spicy. Go ahead, Zoe. That this will be a place where we don't agree. Um, And I'll say this just really quickly. There's a difference in the type of authority that a lot of these people have that you're you're describing. I mean, there's a difference between the authority of a cop and a firefighter, and there's a reason that most of us respect firefighters <laughs> and these cops that walk around with badges and a gun on their hip and basically have a license to kill with no fucking retaliation. They get to investigate their own in most cases in most cities. Um I mean, like California, man, they got like fucking gangs and stuff like it's not even necessarily legal, but they're the ones who would stop it. So it's like you literally have cops out there with tattoos for different police gangs that they're involved in. And like they have initiations and they it's it's fucking nuts, dude. The stuff that cops get away with. And I think that type of authority absolutely corrupts. And I think authority in general actually does corrupt. But I'll say this. There are some people who are not as corruptible as others or they're just so stubborn in their ways that it makes it harder to corrupt them. And one example I like using is Stalin in the sense of, you know, when he wanted to start making a bunch of democratic changes into the USSR, some of these he took to vote to the party and Khrushchev led against him and he lost when he wanted to actually give local people the ability to vote democratically. So basically now if if you're within a a factory, instead of just having a Soviet who basically votes for you, now the factory gets to all individually vote. And if that Soviet happens to vote against them, he has to basically explain why. He still has that power to do it like he did pre-Stalin, but it's now more transparent. He can't just say, oh, well, you know, most people actually agreed with me because now it's on paper because people actually voted. Khrushchev did not like this and he won that. So what did Stalin do? He fucking did it anyway, which a lot of people called him a totalitarian because of it, because he goes, well, they democratically voted that they wouldn't do that. And then Stalin did it anyway. It's like, yeah, but he undemocratically gave more power to people democratically. So that's not necessarily totalitarianism. And I think this is where, yes, authoritarianism can corrupt. But there are some people who can operate within it. And I think it kind of goes back to what Jaron says. You can't get rid of it. So you just have to properly manage it. You have to hold it accountable every single fucking day. And you have to be smart about it. Like when you find yourself in these situations, like people who agreed with Khrushchev are just fucking dumb. He gave more power democratically. 
I think Cosper had a take on this too. No, yeah. All I wanted to say was I kind of, uh, you know, I don't think that, I mean, the way I would put it is I, I like want to be controlled, but I just want to know how I'm being controlled as far as authority goes. And I think that we would all be inclined to like authority if we like liked what the authority was doing particularly. You know, if my government is doing a very good job of providing health care of people, there is an authority at doing that, I guess, per se. There's a machine that's functioning in that manner. I think the general uh, conclusion that people come to is that they don't like the authority that's at hand when it's operating in a way that they don't agree with, typically. And I think that you raise a good question, Sterling, against Ward, but I genuinely see what Ward is saying about, like, the, I don't think that it is authority in itself that corrupts people. I think that it is a much deeper thing than that. I think that it's uh, not only authority, but a amalgamation of, you know, temptation along with other things that aren't just that. So, yeah. So this is bouncing back off of Ward's point, and it adds more complexity to the issue. And, you know, again, this is part of why I enjoy anarchism and dialectics is because it's, it's constant questions and it's never really an answer. And that annoys the shit out of most people. But so let's take the doctor thing, for instance, let's say a head neurosurgeon, right? And I actually just finished up a chapter in the book that I'm working on regarding this. So basically, there's this guy in, uh, I think, Philadelphia, actually where he joined the medical association, became a neurosurgeon, and the head of the department had come from a different place. So he researched this guy. Apparently, dude had performed a shitload of botched surgeries and had fucked up people for life. And he had come from a different city. But here's the thing. A hospital, due to authoritative structuring, it's actually cheaper and less dramatic for them to just say, hey, listen, We're going to ignore all the shit you did. We're not going to disbar you because we're not going to get the lawyers involved and it takes too much money and time. And if you just leave quietly, we're just going to pretend none of this ever happened. So the guy that ended up being in charge at this particular hospital had a ton of malpractice suits against him because of the authoritative structuring of the medical industry. And he had all of these good doctors who also have authority underneath him, but the guy in charge had been not convicted of malpractice, but he should have been and wasn't because of the reigning model. So it's like, do I want to have a doctor that knows their shit and prove that through some system of authority? Of course. But then we look deeper at the system of of authority itself and due to capitalism and cost saving and just all of this shit, we can't even trust that model. Yeah, that was going to be my rebuttal to you is, is it because of the authority or is it because of the capitalist mindset here in the U.S. that created that situation? In that case, it's capitalism, but I do believe it could exist in a multitude of situations. I would say that regarding whether authority corrupts people inherently, it's a big question. I would really like to get like the theoretical take on it. But regardless of that, I would say if I was given the choice between authority in the hands of capitalists who gamed the system to get into power in a capitalist system of government, I would pick any day some revolutionary leaders of a vanguard party who got to that position because they played a key role in a communist revolution and then were backed up, but also criticized constantly by a class conscious working class in that state. That's what I'm going to pick every time. And they may still become corrupt just by the nature of the power there. but. If you then take measures because you have a class conscious working class to implement a system that has accountability and transparency built into it, 
then yeah, it's going to do a hell of a lot to counter that corruption. Wasn't there a real quick, this might be, this is totally off topic, but because um, Sterling mentioned Khrushchev, like wasn't there a conversation between Khrushchev and uh, Ho Chi Minh where like Khrushchev was like accusing Ho Chi Minh of um, like not being a socialist because he came from a bourgeois background and Ho Chi Minh was straight up just like, oh yeah, we're both class traders. I can't remember if that was Ho Chi Minh and Khrushchev or who it was, but it was, that was a quote. It was like somebody who was, came from a wealthy background and became a communist. And then somebody who came from a very working class background and became like a leader of a party and was very obviously corrupt. And the uh, one who would, go ahead. I think that's Che. Oh, was it? It was. Che came from a very, very wealthy background. Okay. I, I, I was thinking it was Ho Chi Minh for some reason. Our listeners are going to be like raging out if they know who it is. And they're going to be like <laughs> flipping out telling us. Let us know in the Discord. Join. <laughs> um, so I want to get into some more of the things that Jaron had written regarding another spicy, probably straw man, but still somewhat relevant talking point criticizing anarchism. Um, so what we hear are that anarchists want to skip right to dessert without having dinner first. They want to skip past the authoritarian stage and just go me, to the classes. Was that? Too. I said me too. <laughs> <laughs> like ideally, um, yeah. Going to Dairy Queen tonight. I'm given the choice. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you also have to be realistic. You know, you want to, you don't want to be unhealthy. Come on. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the, again, that's the meme version of the argument. But again, because memes are good at conveying complicated thoughts simply, I think it has some merit to it. But also yeah. tying into that is the criticism that anarchists have never had a successful revolution. That's definitely something you hear ML say. They will harp on that shit all day. And it's I know not true. Like, no, it's it's not. It's not. Like so, Jaron, I would like stupid. you to counter that. It's just stupid. Yeah, I mean, I can slap that right out of the air. Please um, do. Please. So, I mean, this is this is why we're having this podcast is to illustrate intersectionalism and the yeah. need for it. Because I would challenge any Marxist that says that to show me a Marxist revolution that didn't have anarchists helping. Thank them. you. Thank you. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> like literally in the Red Revolution, it was the Black Army and Nestromachno taking over the Ukraine. In uh, People's Liberation, it was in Guangzhou. In Vietnamese Restoration League in Hanoi, uh, Korean independence movement kicking Japan out of Korea. They still celebrate in North and South Korea, by the way. This guy named Kim Chua Chin, both the countries, no matter how politically divided they are, celebrate this dude who was an anarchist and helped kick Japan the fuck out of Korea. But, you know, to me, if, if I could look at all of these examples that I just listed and point out something that shows why anarchism is valuable, it's this. It's the geography of these regions. All of these places, the Ukraine, Guangzhou, Hanoi, and uh, the coastal regions of Korea had their own, not indigenous populations, but populations that were separate from the mainland. And just taking the Ukraine as an example, because I'm the most familiar with it, not only was it probably one of the most valuable pieces of geography for the Soviets, but it had the most capacity for right-wing resistance and the white army had a massive hold on this place because that's the one of the only freshwater ports that russia has they fought wars over sevastopol like three or four different times i want to say anyway without the regional know-how and the connections to the people in southern ukraine 
it's very likely the Red Revolution would not have been won. And the reason they were able to take that is because of the regional know-how of the Black Army. They were from there. And because of their focus on just regional liberation, that's how they wrenched it from the White Army's paws. And I'm not saying that the Red, you know, the Red Revolution and the Red Army did not have the efficacy to get that done. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but that's not how history went down. Just real quick on the meme thing, I'll say this. I love memes that make fun of anarchists. I love memes that make fun of tankies. I love memes that make fun of fucking everything. And they're all great, and people should have fun and share them. It's all in good fun. But I fucking hate when people share bullshit memes. Like, I've seen anarchist memes that are bashing fucking Lenin, and I've seen tanky memes bashing Kropotkin, and I'm like... It's just fucking dumb. Like, you can't slam dunk on Kropotkin. Are you fucking stupid? <laughs> fucking bread Santa, dude. Are you kidding me? Kropotkin's a crumb. Lennon's a whole meal. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, but it is. Like, Can I make Trotsky a snack? It's one of my funny, funny uh, meme formats. Yeah. I like it. I, like I will I will admit Mike's anti-anarchist memes do make me laugh, and you're the only person I can say that about. Dude, did yeah, you not yeah. like the one I shared in the pod mods? No, you know what, Ward, I already told you that I love your meme game. I, I tell you that whenever I see you. <laughs> dude, I thought that one, the dude at the party, is just too fucking funny, dude. Just like, <laughs> do you like successful revolutions? Yes. Darn. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's funny. Like, it's not real, but it's funny. Yeah, go ahead, Cosper. I was just gonna say I'm gonna go ahead and head off so I can get some schoolwork done. Yeah, it was I nice talking with y'all. It's good to be back. It's all good. I think we're getting wrapping up back. anyway, but Thanks. catch y'all yeah, later. We're getting close to the end. Oh, yeah. so, I'm gonna dip too, guys. I gotta wake up so goddamn early, and you guys yeah. are on a roll and just keep running with it. This is gonna be a good episode. I had a yeah. blast. Cool, no problem. All right, well, all thanks right. for coming on, man. Missed you. Yeah, great seeing everybody again. Back at you, man. All right, so let's get into some more of this uh, pace spin stuff, and then we can talk shit on Sterling and Cosper since they're not here. <laughs> yeah, real quick, I would love to say that I like how me and Jaren are getting along so well, and <laughs> yet me and like Sterling are debating amongst things, and me and Mike are debating against things. I and thought me that and- was not too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like right, like we're supposed to be all the tankies against this anarchist in this episode, and me and Jaren are like, yes, yes, mm-hmm. I mean, I'll admit, it is a distinct possibility that Jaren could turn us all into anarchists since he just has the best takes on things and has, like, just more knowledgeable uh, opinions on a lot of things than most people do, so. I mean, again, though, to be fair, I hate so many anarchists. I do. There's a lot of cringy ones, dude. There's some terrible ones, like Reddit anarchists, like Anarchy 101. Read through that, and it, it will make you a tanky. Like, yep. fucking... <laughs> Um, actually, you know what? That kind of gets into a good thing. I didn't write anything up for this. I didn't um, even prepare or have any plans of talking about it. But so something that I do hear anarchists say, they will say that tankies just want to kill anarchists. Like as soon as there's a revolution, they think that MLs are just going to turn the gun on the anarchists. It's almost obnoxious to the point where they're like screaming in your face like, oh, you just want to kill me. You just want to kill me. It's like, no, I just want to have I want to get rid of capitalism. I want to kill the fascists and the, the Nazis and everything. But like. You're kind of making me want to with how obnoxious you are, to be honest. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I like I like to respond to that when it's like, oh, yeah, you just kill us all. I love responding to that with this meme that I have. It's from a German TV show where it's like a communist kangaroo, but it's like, I'm a communist. 
lit as What fuck. are you? He's like, I'm an anarchist. He's like, cool. We could be friends until the revolution. After mm-hmm. it gets complicated. <laughs> My only response to that would be, I don't think that um, any actual ML, any Marxist, any principled Marxist has the desire to kill anarchists or any leftists of any type. Um, if they do, they're probably never going to get into a position of power. They could do that anyway because they're just some kind of edgy teen again. But as long as anarchists don't start siding with the capitalists and the fascists and the reactionaries and the counter-revolutionaries after whatever communist revolution that we hope we see in our lifetime happens, then there would be no problem. But if that's what you do, and then going back to that Michael Parenti quote, where it's the people who are so critical of the revolution the day after it happens and are very concerned if whether the fascists have their radio stations and their platform and their free speech and the ability to express their fascist rhetoric. If that's your concern as an anarchist, if you're very concerned about the, you know, the well-being of the fascists right after the revolution, well, then I can't really be too apologetic for you, to be honest. You know, I can almost understand why anybody who's willing, who's trying to uphold a communist revolution would see you as a counter-revolutionary yourself and a reactionary. So that should be the distinction. I mean, I feel like that's the unsaid part. And like with every straw man argument, there's always the unsaid part of the argument. And in that case, it would be anarchists not admitting that their role after the revolution would be to then fight in favor of the capitalists and the fascists, whether it's out of a genuine desire just to have free speech for everyone and liberty for everyone, even if it's misguided, or if they're just cynically doing it because they may be sympathetic to reactionaries themselves. Just don't fucking do that. Just don't fucking do that and you'll be fine. Sorry, go ahead, Ward. No, I was going to say, ideally, like, in the ideal circumstances, we have anarchists like Jaren, where we have a revolution, and after the revolution, we have anarchists who are able to accurately critique hierarchy and authority so that us MLs can keep authority in check so that the system does not get corrupted and that socialism can move forward. I would agree with that. And I think the, the only caveat, and again, my, my goal here is to be honest and not stand my own whatever compartment here. I think that some, again, anarchism in the revolutions that we have seen operates largely on regional basis, right? And when sweeping reforms come in that are Marxist, they're seeking to unify these regional places into some larger macro structure, Right. Um, And this can go one of two ways. And this is where the divide always happens. And one, I completely disagree with. The other, I pseudo agree with. They'll start siding with the kulaks on one side because they don't want to be controlled from this overarching thing in Moscow when they're in southern Ukraine, right? So they say, okay, well, we're going to side with the, the capitalists. And that has happened. The other side of it would be that they want to maintain, and this is more common, the anarcho-syndicalism that has proven itself primarily in the Western world. And that's where we have, you know, one factory is taken over by its workers. They show the model to the factory next door. They do that. They do that. And then they start maintaining their own product quotas and uh, price controls and basically everything a Soviet style government would do, but just amongst a regional component or amount of people. And a lot of times what anarchists will have a problem with is when, again, somebody from the northern part of the continent is saying, you're going to produce this much and it's going to cost this much. And there can be a lot of lost detail in that sort of translation. I mean, again, I'm using the USSR because it was massive. And that isn't to say that something like Soviet-style democracy could not work. 
but it is to say that it didn't work as well as it could have in that scenario due to two things, land mass and technology, and also capitalism beating down the door. Mm -hmm. So typically when the divide in praxis comes from anarchists, I would say that it's mostly due to regional anarcho-syndicalism versus the larger Soviet Republic. And there's, you know, there's warranted things about that. And then there's things that are just bullshit. Yeah. I'd say my main critique with that as a tanky is like the efficacy of multiple militias versus a state run military to protect the revolution. Sure. Like I, I just don't see how, whether loosely or closely affiliated militias could be nearly as effective as a singular state military in protecting the proletariat. I think that that's a very reasonable argument. And even more to that point, I think that that's why in the developing world and in Eastern Europe, Marxism has been so successful. I think that the cards are laid out a little differently for us in the West. And I think that if there were a vanguard, the U.S. would bomb the shit out of it. However, if a bunch of dock workers took over their dock and kicked the boss the fuck out and started setting their own quotas and setting their own price controls and that spread down the coast, there's not a whole hell of a lot the government can do about that. Oh, fuck no. So it's, uh, this reinforces Marx's dialectics on revolutions to me. No two are ever the same. And even insofar as vanguardism, the Leninism part, I mean, dude, you know, if, if I were in the goddamn Congo, I'd probably be a Marxist, but I'm not. Yeah. I'm yeah. in the U.S. That's why I'm an anarchist. And that's, that's uh, to me, it just reinforces what Marx said is like, it depends on time and place. I really kind of take that to heart as much as I disagree with some of Marx's shit, but I think that that's a great observation. And I'll be the first to say like, yeah, the Soviet Union would have collapsed a lot sooner if it didn't have a unified badass military that was able to take on Nazi Germany pretty much solo. Like mm -hmm. yeah. that's really fucking impressive. Yeah. And then, and then to be able to resist Imperial U S and Western powers for as long as it did before it collapsed, you know, that's, I see that as a fucking win whenever, when any non leftist points to that as a fucking loss for the Soviet union. Right. It's like, dude, we went from they went from with a revolution from a feudal society to winning the fucking space race. Like it was massively successful, but due to imperialist powers, it could not last. You know, it mm -hmm. wasn't a fault of socialism or communism, as people love to claim. It's due to the hegemony of Western capitalism. Yeah. And I think um, just tying that all together, I feel like. The critiques that we have of the USSR for its failings and, you know, any previous or existing socialist country, I say this all the time, but it just comes down to critical support and then also learning from the mistakes that were made. And Absolutely. so ideally, the next communist revolution, if it were to happen, whether it's in the West or in the global South, wherever it would happen, hopefully it does. It would be ideally made up of both authoritarian Marxists and anarchists and use elements from both to actually be more effective. That would be ideal, especially principled anarchists like Jaren, who have actual critiques of hierarchy and authority versus anarchities that have just hot takes and fucking meme yeah. takes, you know? It's funny how this whole episode has turned into a love fest for Jaren here. I like it. I fucking love this guy so fucking much, <laughs> like honestly. 
I, I mean, I'm just like imagining like the ideal next socialist revolution and how it's literally learning from all the mistakes of previous socialist states and revolutions and also including anarchists and leftists of all tendencies. I don't know. I mean, it, it fills me with optimism. Like the idea of that happening it would be great if that could actually be pulled off. And I just hope that people are able to live up to that kind of expectation and actually incorporate all the aspects of what worked in the past and then learn from the mistakes of what didn't and really make something worthwhile to just better the world for humanity. But I do want to, Jaron, I definitely want you to get into some more of the notes you wrote because you wrote I think Jaron had a point real quick. Go ahead, buddy. Yeah, I mean, honestly, out of everything that I wrote, this is something that I really wanted to say because it's important to me. And this relates to what we were talking about with no two revolutions being the same. And I think if we want to see forward momentum here in the U.S., it's something that we have to talk about. If you look at the French Revolution, which is widely regarded as the inception of leftist politics in praxis, it showcased that the middle class is the most revolutionary active class. They have the time to see what's wrong. They have the time to mobilize. They have the resources to get out, get somewhere and do something, right? In the U.S., we need to think about this because the middle class is overwhelmingly white and the middle and lower classes, um, though there are white people, there is a wealth disparity to be mentioned here. Black people, people of color, BIPOC, they don't have the same resources that white America does. So if there is a middle class revolution here, it will be overwhelmingly white. It will be to their comfort. It will be liberal in nature and nothing will fundamentally change. So this is what I had written relating to that. One thing that can be distilled from this is the power and sheer requirement for identity politics to be addressed if we want to see a leftist revolution in the West. Mind you, I mean addressed and not commodified, not fetishized. And here's what I mean by that. This is touching on a deeper truth that I can aim at any Western Marxist or anarchist. The overactive focus on traditional theory is blinding and non-inclusive. No one should know Marx quotes backwards and forwards when they have never read anything from Angela Davis, Cornell West, Roxanne Ortiz, or other BIPOC voices. If we are disassociated from the material conditions of our own brothers and sisters, no amount of theory in the world will make theirs or our conditions better. A lot of pseudo-intellectual American leftists suffer from this affliction, and it's something that we have to actively make a part of our lives. If we don't focus too much, and I, I mean too much, on the Black experience, the Native experience, the uh, Asian experience here, and all other subsects in the American melting pot, we are not going to have a proletarian revolution. We will have a color revolution of liberals. And the BLM protests last year proved that. Because look, another Black man died. Is anybody burning down a police station? No, because Trump's not president. I mean, I will say there is some, there are some, there is some unrest in Minneapolis or uh, I think it's Minneapolis where it's happening right now. Good. And, and uh, I hope it escalates. Yeah. But I, I you know, I, the common take that I'm seeing now is just like, and, and they're not wrong at all. They're like, nothing changed. Nothing fundamentally changed under Biden. Like it's a couple months into his presidency and all the same problems are still happening. And the response of liberals a year ago was vote. Make sure you get out there and vote. Make sure you get right. Trump out of office. And they just were so eager to shift all the blame of this on Trump that as if these conditions weren't absolutely systemic, as if they weren't fundamental to this country at its very core. Did you want to go on, Jaron? No, yeah. honestly, out of everything that I had, that was just something that I really wanted to mention is 
if we don't have those voices from the proletarian class and it's just sort of set on the shoulders of white America, we're not going to really see anything change, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And this is something I believe, Mike, you touched on in a previous episode. I can't remember exactly that, like, if there was to be an imminent, quote unquote, socialist revolution, it would be a white Christian one where it would only benefit white Christians here in America. I mean, we almost had it with QAnon. Like, that was as close as we've gotten in the modern era to some kind of, like, grassroots revolution here. As shitty as that is, like, it sucks. But, like, and because it's not based on class consciousness, it's based on literal fables and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Um, It's unfortunate, but that seems to be what grabs people because, again, Americans are just so indoctrinated against communism, against any kind of class consciousness and working class thought that it's easier for them to grab onto this pseudo religious bullshit than to actual theory based materialist analysis of what is going on in their lives and what is really holding them down. Um, I do want to try to start to wrap it up. So I want to ask you, Jaron, if there's any more of the stuff that you wrote here in your extensive notes that you would like to cover, because I'm perfectly happy to have you read through all of it because all of this is really good stuff as I'm looking at it. But if there's anything that you want to get through before we start to just sort of bring it home. No, the, the only thing that I'll just say in summation is I, I believe that Marx addressed class in a way that had never had been done before in history. And anarchists uh, traditionally stood on the shoulders of that and addressed identity in a way that had never been talked about in history. Mm-hmm. And to me personally, one without the other is incomplete. So that's just my final take on all of it. Yeah. I would say that there's not just anarchists that stood on Marxist shoulders when it comes to identity politics as well. There's other principled Marxists as well, like uh, Franz Fanon, who touched on colonialism and its effects and um, how identity politics play into that as well. There's plenty of BIPOC uh, Marxists who talk about colonialism and racial identity and how those effects play into overall capitalism and exploitation yeah absolutely and definitely again with with just referencing someone like angela davis who is a marxist for any of our listeners that have only read the the european masters you need to read stuff from here you need to read about the black experience marxist or not anarchist or not it's very very important to understand what the people here in the u.s are dealing with because that will help you mobilize with them to amplify their voices and to hopefully push us towards something better than this just abject shithole. Yeah. So I guess my closing thoughts on all of this would be just to reiterate that, yeah, any successful revolution that happens in the future, hopefully within our lifetimes will incorporate aspects from all tendencies, as long as they are relevant to the conditions that are going on wherever it takes place. So if that were to be here in America or anywhere in the the global north and the capitalist west, it's going to have to incorporate a lot of anarchist thought because that is what takes identity politics into account. That is what actually takes the, you know, the minority struggle into account. And it's also going to have to incorporate Marxist thought because, again, you need that class element of it as well. So hopefully that is the case and hopefully that does happen. And I think we solved the left unity problem, guys. I think we fixed it tonight. I think we... I mean, hopefully that's what people come away with this. Hopefully they don't, like I said, this was not going to be an episode where we're shouting at each other and disagreeing over everything and calling each other anarchities and tankies. China. Not that we, we, yeah. 
not that we don't proudly own those terms ourselves. So, but yeah, left unity is the key, and that should be the overall message of all of this. So, with that being said, let's wrap it up there. Jaron, you want to go ahead and plug your website? Yeah, so I'm going to plug something different this week in uh, celebration of finally doing this episode. This is a book that led me to understanding anarchism better. Uh, it's called Classic Writings in Anarchist Criminology, A Historical Dismantling of Punishment and Domination. And it's a collection of essays. That is Classic Writings in Anarchist Criminology. And it was compiled by Anthony Nocella. Nice. Uh, Ward, do you want to plug your Instagram? I have two Instagrams. My main account is at Ward Lolly, W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y. And my backup is Millennial Leftist, common spelling, no underscores or spaces. Cool, cool. And I'll do uh, Cosper and Sterling plugs since they uh, had to bounce a little early. So Sterling runs the Twitter. That's Twitter slash TurnLeftistPod. And Cosper, their Twitch is twitch.tv slash C-O-S-P-E-R underscore. Um, and then for everything else, please check out our link tree. That's linktree slash TurnLeftist. Again, I'll plug the Patreon. That's Patreon slash TurnLeftist. And I do want to shout out our current patrons. We have Jay Reese, Carl Marx. Oddly enough, thank you for doing that, Carl. We made uh, it. And, <laughs> hell yeah. And Phil. Phil's actually a personal friend of mine. So shout out to my buddy, Phil. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. And I did want to uh, just read a little plug that Carl Marx asked us to, uh, since he was such an incredibly generous patron as well. That's uh, so dope. I'm just going to read this thing that Karl Marx asked me to read. Yeah. I know, right? Um, so he wanted us to plug Donovan Lynch. Uh, Donovan Lynch was murdered by a Virginia Beach Police Department officer who turned off his body cam, and no one is talking about it. And I Googled this, and yeah, there are definitely news articles about it, but it was the first I heard of it when he mentioned it. This was recently. It happened on, I think, March 28th, so not too long ago, and that should be bigger news. Of course, it will probably fall under the radar because of how often this just fucking happens. That's the sad reality of living in America. But I did want to shout that out for him. And his last final thing that he, Karl Marx wanted to plug for the podcast, he says, if you're a leftist in America, it is imperative you take your presence off just the internet. Partake in direct action, volunteer, protest, organize with comrades around your region, join a union, donate to mutual aid, try to make other people's lives a little less miserable. You don't need a revolution to be revolutionary. So I think that's very wise words from our close personal friend who hangs out with us in the Discord, Karl Marx. So, based. Based yeah, based stuff. All right, so with that, we will leave it there. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please tell a friend, rate us, and review us on your favorite podcast app. And, uh, yeah, Patreon content coming soon, so subscribe there if you would like to have access to that. All right, cool. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great night. Have a good one, y'all. Take care.